the time for deeds, not words. And today we can say that yes, we have included migrant victims in this bill. We have included disabled victims. We have improved victims' access to justice. We have sought to stop perpetrators before they did it again. Let's not have to look ourselves in the mirror and say we could have done more. The Domestic Abuse Bill has been a huge part of the work that I have done since I came into this house. I'm going to miss it. <laughs> Maybe that's why I want it to go to, uh, you know, back to the Lords. I just can't let it go. Along with victims, organisations and many brilliant and brave victims themselves, we have worked to amend, educate, improve and build consensus and agreement with the government. It has been an honour at many times. That is what we are doing here today. We are always seeking to improve this bill, not for political wins. We seek to improve it for millions of terrified victims and their children in this country. Their Lordships and the Baronesses have been incredibly thoughtful, thorough and detailed in their amendments. We should listen because I promise you all here today that eventually on every single one of these amendments a terrible case is going to come along that proves that we should have acted. It won't take long. They come every three days. Let's try and make that happen less. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and episode 18. Now, that was Jess Phillips MP that you just heard speaking in the House of Commons on the Domestic Abuse Bill on April the 15th. And yes, it's a very sobering thought that a terrible case will come along every three days, and one already has, which is why the government should be doing everything that they can to stop these murders in slow motion and hold abusive men to account. Now, ironically, a week after the government voted down our amendment, Amendment 42 in the Domestic Abuse Bill, it's National Stalking Awareness Week in the UK. Now, at the start of National Stalking Awareness Week, Here's what the Secretary of State, Robert Buckland, had to say just two days after he voted down Amendment 42. It is uh, National Stalking Awareness Week 2021, and this year's theme is Unmasking Stalking. Now, you might have thought and be forgiven for thinking that the COVID lockdown has given some respite for victims, but sadly, that's not proved to be the case. We've seen a rise in online stalking, which is just as insidious as its offline equivalent, and an increase in the number of uh, calls and complaints uh, being made to uh, helplines and indeed to the agencies in general. So it's our job to raise awareness of this wicked crime, to uh, increase support for victims and also to address those perpetrators who are carrying out the, this appalling conduct. Uh, we need to call it out, we need to stamp it out, we need to do all we can to deal with the menace of stalking in our society. Hmm... Yes, we do need to call it out, as Robert Buckland said, and we do need to stamp out stalking and do all we can to deal with the menace of stalking in our society. Well, more importantly, to deal with stalkers. And interestingly, 
Robert Buckland was on the 2012 All-Party Parliamentary Stalking Law Reform Inquiry, which I was a specialist advisor to and also spearheaded the campaign, which successfully resulted in stalking becoming a criminal offence. One of the key recommendations was for stalkers to be included on the register. And so Robert Buckland really understands this issue well. And so it's mind-blowing, really, that here we are in 2021 and he's saying that he'll do everything he can and he has the power to, and yet he voted down Amendment 42. Now, as Jess Phillips MP said, we need deeds, not words. The words are completely hollow. And I wanted to call this out because women and children deserve better. It's just not good enough. But there's better news. And I want to give you an update because the domestic abuse bill was back in the House of Lords on Wednesday, the 21st of April. Now, I've been working hard behind the scenes with Baroness Jam Royal and a fantastic cross-party group in the House of Lords. And we retabled Amendment 42 and it was debated again under Motion G1. Now, I do just want to pay tribute to Baroness Jam Royal and all those who spoke so eloquently and so well about why it is so important that serial abusers and stalkers must be included on the National Register. The speeches really were incredible and Baroness Jam Royal pushed to a vote, which was incredibly nerve-wracking, I have to say. But it's good news. We won. We won the vote 291 to 228, which is fantastic. A real victory for survivors, victims, families and campaigners. And so what happens next? Well, it's back to the House of Commons we go, where it will be debated once more. The Houses must reach agreement before the bill can pass and receive royal assent. So this is the process known as ping-pong. So you may be listening to this episode on Friday the 23rd of April or across that weekend or the early part of next week. And what I will ask is that you please take the time to write to your Member of Parliament because this bill will be going back to the House of Commons on the week commencing April the 26th. So please be an upstander. Please make sure that you write to your MP. It need only be brief, stating why you think it's important for serial perpetrators and stalkers to be included on the National Register. And you can reference George's case and many others that I've spoken about. But please just take two minutes to email your MP. You can Google their email address and just send them an email. It's really important. And ask them to support Motion G1. The name has changed, which is unhelpful in some respects, but it's really important that you say support Motion G1. It's much more important when you understand that since Sarah Everard was murdered in London, that 16 more women have been killed. 16. So it's up to all of us to be upstanding and be an activist. And you've listened to part one of my incredible interview with Georgia. This is the real life consequence when perpetrators are not held to account. So without further ado, I want to jump back into where I left off in this amazing interview with Georgia Gabriel Hooper. It 
it's not just about the murder in a vacuum. It's about the lead up of everything that was going on, this drip, drip, drip about control and how he controlled her. And it's all through the psychological, the emotional, the coercive, the physical when it's needed, right? The physical and sexual when it's needed to reinforce. But it sounds to me like there was an awful lot going on prior to him taking that decision to kill her and unfortunately kill her in front of you, which, you know, when I heard you describe everything that happened, I just felt so angry. I felt so angry that he felt entitled enough to take your mother's life in such a brutal way in front of her daughter. And perhaps, you know, talking us through, well, your mum did eventually decide to leave him, didn't she? And tell us a little bit about that, because you both left and you managed to get a house in the end. But tell us about how that happened and, and what his behaviour was like through that period. Um, so, yeah, he, as you said, you know, a lot earlier on, it tends to, um, you know, go worse after the wedding. Um, and, you know, very stereotypically for us, it did. Um, and they were only married uh, 18 months before my mum decided to leave. Um, and, you know, he just, his behaviour just became more and more domineering and just worse and worse. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he was very childish. So, uh, you know, and, and very sulky. And my mum really did feel like she was just living with another child. And the behaviour just became more and more severe. And, you know, my nan and granddad would refuse to come round and see us. And, you know, it got to that point where even they were saying, do you know what, we're not coming anymore. Um, you know, because he made them feel so uncomfortable. Um and it just really went downhill. And the the main catalyst, though, to leaving um, was he'd been shooting one day um, and he'd come home late at night, uh, very drunk. And normally that, that was quite normal, um, <laughs> normal behaviour um, for, for him. And normally he'd leave his gun either in the back room by the door um, or in the kitchen if it needed to dry under the radiator. Um, and then the next day he'd clean it as he needed to and then pop it back in the cabinet locked away. Um, and that night he... I don't know what he was doing. Um, however, he came in and there was an argument, a bit of an altercation. Um, I was in my room asleep, uh, but I woke up to this um, and... I could hear a lot of bang going on um, and then, you know, a lot of shouting. And then I just heard this massive bang. Um, and I kind of assumed at first that he was just drunk and he'd walked into the wardrobe or, you know, something like that. Um, and so I texted my mum just being like, are you OK? Because she went very quiet and I was concerned that, you know, something might have actually happened because um, she didn't laugh at him or, you know, there, there was no sort of what did you do that for kind of thing. Um, and then he ended up storming, he stormed off down the stairs. And so I texted her, and, well, yeah, I texted her at this point and um, she was kind of like, just stay where you are, don't, you know, don't come out. I was like, oh, okay, something's actually happened then. Um, and then I could hear him downstairs in his gun cabinet, which, like I said before, he would normally leave it overnight to dry out um, before cleaning it the next day and then putting it back in the cabinet. So there really was no reason for, you know, at 11 o'clock or so at night, there was no reason for him to be faffing around with 
the gun cabinet. So it was very much an intimidation thing. Um, he stomped back up the stairs incredibly loud and incredibly slowly, um, you know, and he did make my mum think that he had the gun. And he, you know, fortunately he didn't, but he sort of said, he said, you know, if you let me walk out this door now, we are getting divorced. And this was this was December 2017. Um, and, you know, everything unfolded very quickly after that. Um, and, yeah, he, my mum let him walk out. So he walked off and he drove off and went to stay at friends. But to her, you know, that was quite normal conversation. It was, I'll divorce you all the time. Um, you know, so she ended up just sort of staying and, you know, saying, oh, we're not going anywhere. Um, she'd been out. I think the main cause of it was she sort of gone, do you know what? I'm actually going to start going out now. You know, she just sort of got past the intimidation and, you know, they're not going out, not having people over. And she started going out and seeing her best friend and socializing a bit more. And of course he thought she was having an affair or at least he accused her of that. Um, which is where these, you know, this sort of altercation came from. Um, but after he drove off, I obviously came sprinting out of my room to see what was going on. Um, and as I sort of flung open the door, the television was on the floor, sparking and broken into smithereens, really. Um, I've never seen my mum so scared um, in my entire life. She was shaking like a like a leaf blesser. Um, and, yeah, she, she said to me, she was, she was like, I, I really thought he had the gun. I thought he was coming back up with the gun, um, you know, when he'd stomped up. And I, I ran over to go and I don't know what I was planning on doing with the TV, but I went to go and touch it and then realised it was still sparking and probably a good idea to turn the plug off. Um, so I, fortunately I did. But, you know, that house is a couple hundred years old. Those floorboards are the original floorboards and there was carpet on top. He threw it with that much force. And this was only a you know, small 28 inch or something, whatever, TV. Um, he threw it with such force that it ripped the carpet and put a hole in the oak floorboard. You know, the, the floorboards, the original ones. And as you can imagine, that takes some takes some force, that does, um, to to inflict that much damage. Um, and that really, that was the, the final moment. I said to her, look, we're going. Um, and we packed our bags and my mum was like, I'll leave the dog. We'll come back for tomorrow. And she was blessed. She was only nine months old. I was like, I'm not leaving my puppy. Um, so we took her with us um, because I was concerned because I know what he's like. And I was concerned that he would, because the dog was mine, um, I was concerned that he would just take it out on the dog. Um, and I had no doubt that he would. And he, you know, he he was cruel to animals previously, um, not regularly, but that, you know, there were certain incidents of, of cruelty along the years that that sort of made you go oh that's not quite normal um and you know as you know yourself one of the the main signs really of sort of not very nice person is if they're cruel to animals so you know that that, that again was another um flag that we missed really um but yeah so we left that night and we ended up staying at my nan and granddad's for a roughly five or six weeks i think um and over this this time you know this was christmas 2017 um we did go back for christmas day because my mum just wanted to pacify him and you know she was just like look we'll go back we'll go back just for the day you know whatever and it was probably the most awkward play you know time you know place day i've ever had um 
it was just the three of us normally. Well, it was our turn to host Christmas. Normally, um, him and his brothers and his mum would take it in turns who was going to have Christmas dinner um, each year. And we'd all go to that person's house. And it was our turn to host. Um, and we had to cancel hosting, um, which, you know, for him, uh, he was he was all about sort of saving face and looking good and you know that made him that didn't make us look good the fact that we had to cancel christmas because there was a you know family issue um really let's let's break it down because of his behavior was the reason why you and your mum left not because of what family did it was what he did he brought it upon himself but yet other people are paying the consequence or the price for it yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, but yeah, it was just the three of us and we had this dining room that we only used once a year or twice a year for big events or for Christmas, um, with it being quite a big house. And the three of us were sat around the table and it was like, you can fit 12, a good 12 people on that table. And it was like, why are we sat in here? Why are we doing this? No one was speaking. And oh, it was horrific. But I ended up wanting to stay because I loved the house not, and I loved my bedroom you know, that bedroom was sort of the only bedroom I'd had where I really felt safe. I really enjoyed being in that house. I loved the farm. And that really was my main concern. I was quite, I wasn't really too fussed that they were splitting up. I was just sad I was going to have to move out the farmhouse because I really, I was in my, absolutely, absolutely in my element there. I did want to stay and, you know, he was very much using me as a pawn, um, you know, trying to turn me against my mum or trying to, you know, get to me. Um, I'd been asking him to teach me how to shoot for years. I'd been shooting rifle, air rifles and things like that, but um, I'd asked him to teach me how to um, use a shot gun um because i'd been beating for however many years and i wanted that i wanted i was sick of getting the bum deal trawling through the um you know all the scrubland i wanted i wanted the fun bit um so he always said no um because he you know my stepbrother had only just started shooting and you know um we were we were treated very differently um you know i was always um the annoyance and the you know I was always in the way whereas my stepbrother you know couldn't really do anything wrong in his eyes um so again that caused major problems um but yeah and he decided suddenly overnight to take me shooting and to give up his day at a very expensive shoot on a very expensive estate and um, which was not you know something he would normally have done um and he was going around that day I went I went and he was going around that day you know telling everyone how proud he was of me and you know blah 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 and he taught me to shoot and x y and z and actually one of the guys who worked for us had taught me to shoot because he this he would never teach me um and this other guy said you know what actually I'll teach you because he's not teaching you so I'll do it um but yeah he was like walking around like he owned the place because I'd shot well um and you know at the end of the day he was like well if you stay with if your mum stays with me we'll buy you a shotgun for your next birthday and I was not happy we actually had an argument that day at the end of the day because um I was very scared of him I wouldn't say a word wrong I mean again it's not normal but looking back it was um I wouldn't even ask him simple questions I wouldn't even ask him if I could go to work with him I'd say mum can you ask him this mum can you ask him that everywhere even in the pub mum can you ask him if I can have another drink you know I'd never directly ask him because I was so you know scared really um of of what he would think of me and I was scared of getting getting it wrong um because 
he would always accuse me of certain things and say I was X, Y, and Z when actually I hadn't really done anything wrong. Um, but I'd, so, I'd suddenly got a backbone over this period of time. Um, my, I'd seen my mum growing um, away, you know, away from him, growing in herself, um, becoming my, you know, my mum again, you know, the old Cheryl again, the happy Cheryl um, that I hadn't seen for a good few years. So, you know, it was very nice to see her, you know, coming back. And that gave me the confidence a bit to stand up to him then. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I did turn around and go, well, actually, you know, you can't be saying stuff like this and X, Y, and Z. And it, there was, there's a lot more to it than that, but <laughs> I can't, we've got so much to talk about and I can't really remember. It, it was in that, in the context of everything that happened over the six weeks, that was a minor, minor thing. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of stunned me when he just turned around out of nowhere and went, yeah, if you, if your mum comes back, we will get you a shotgun. And he knew I loved, I wanted one. So of course he was going to try it. Fortunately, I was clever enough to not buy into it and not turn on my mum because that's what you've been trying to do. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Um, but yeah, over that six-week six period, um, he, was, he started stalking us then. Um, he was just driving around our house generally. So we were still at my nan and granddad's at this point. We were driving around um, our house, driving around our friends' houses, um, trying to catch us there. Um, and if he couldn't find us there, he'd just go in um, and he'd go through all the range, ranges of emotions you could possibly have. Um, he'd cry, then he'd get angry, then he'd be happy. But it was all a way of trying to, if, if crying didn't get them work, get them to be sympathetic towards him and get them to say, oh yeah, we'll get Cheryl back to you. You know, he'd try anger and intimidation and he'd just try so hard to get my mum to go back to him um, and make out that, those of stuff was happening. He even made out that my mum was hitting menopause and that was, and she'd gone crazy. Sounds like classic gaslighting to me, Georgia. But him going round, I call it going round the power and control wheel where they use every tactic to try and get you back. And normally it takes someone seven times to leave because all these things are said, because they apologise, because they say they're going to change, because they're so emotionally upset, they seem to be devastated because they're saying all the right things. So normally that does work. And uh, I remember you saying that he ranted down the phone at you at times. Yeah, I mean, I that was, again, when I was starting to get more confident, I would, I would say something back to him. But he went as far as to take our car off the drive um, because he, my mum had, you know... She'd left the spare key at his house because all of our stuff was still there. She never even thought that he would take the car. So she just left the spare key there because why not? Um, and he took the spare key, got a taxi to us, 
um, and then just drove the car off the drive. Um, and because it was nighttime, no one was really paying attention until my mum looked out the window and went, oh, where's the car gone? Um, you know, and then she phoned him straight away, mainly because um, you know, the other thing as well, the car was in his name um, and it wasn't his car but it was in his name, in the business name, um, so that we could claim the VAT back, so that, um, you know, it would be cheaper for us. Um, and therefore, you know, it, again, it was another way of him controlling her. Um, you know, she'd ordered a, a lease car, um, and then he said, well, I found you a better car. You know, he'd found her a, a Land Rover, you know, an Evoque, um, and that was much better than the one she'd ordered um but it was well you can put it in my name you know and he used that against us well it's my car i'm taking it you can't have it um and they took it for a, a few days my mum had to borrow her boss's car actually you know in an emergency and um then you know just sort of overnight over this couple of days he just w- went you can have it back now um which was very odd and you know little did we know at the time he'd actually fitted a tracker to the car um while he'd had it um and you know we didn't know this um but he then this is uh, again financial abuse he was like well you can have the car back uh i'll pay the month the month thing um the monthly payments for the car if you pay the wedding debt well there was eight grand a wedding debt the car wasn't you know the the wedding debt cost more a month than the car did um you know so he was like oh, i'll take the deal and then he never ended up paying for the car anyway so my mum ended up lumbered with the wedding debt and the car um which was not part of the deal at all so um yeah and it just kept getting worse they change the rules and that's always the problem that you're left in this confusing and contradicting state of never knowing and I think that's really important you say he took the car and of course you lived in a rural area so the car is really important it's not like you can jump on a tube or a train or your car is what you're dependent on so he takes the thing that matters the most and then when he gets the reaction that he wants because it's all about control well you can have it back but of course he'd fitted a tracker and therefore he could carry on monitoring you and knowing where you were. Classic stalking behaviour, very dangerous behaviour. Yeah, and he got he got so much worse with his guns too. Um, my mum, um, he was threatening to kill himself. His friends went round there a few times and, you know, had to try and snap him out of it. Uh, on Christmas Day, he tried to hang himself off the curtain rail and he even came down and said, I've just tried to kill myself. And we were like, well, what, what do you want us to do? It was a bit odd the way he, I think he was expecting my mum to go, oh no, ah, you know, I can't leave you now. Um, you know, and then he went and started taping hose pipe to the back of his car, yet his car's a diesel. He thought my mum wouldn't know that you can't kill yourself with a diesel car by you know by doing that um fortunately she did and she actually just laughed at him because she was like well he because he she knew it was tactical it wasn't a cry for help he wasn't actually suicidal it was a a, you know tactical thing of i'm going to scare her you know by making her think i'm going to kill myself and actually i'm not because and he probably thought dumb blonde doesn't know um you know manipulative very manipulative and we know suicidal threats can be used as a manipulator I think it it sounds to me that your what your mum originally feared was divorce, which is what he used as the her biggest fear to constantly manipulate her. And then when she says, "Well, the relationship's going to end," he then tries every tactic possible. And then isn't it ironic that he's the one that's desperate not for the for the divorce not to happen? 
But of course, we know it's all about control. He wants to maintain control. He wants her dependent on him. And every behavior that you're describing is about him trying to get that control back, but being fully um, in control whilst he's doing it. Um, yeah, yeah, completely. Um, he he was just all over the place, really. But like you said, very much in control. But his emotions and everything outwardly was just so erratic. It was really hard to keep up. And like I said, with the guns, he my mum even had her gut, her head over the gun with him uh, one of the nights at the farm. And she's you know said to him, if if you're going to take your, take yourself, you're going to have to take me too. Um, you know, I'm not letting you kill yourself. I mean, how dangerous is that? The gun was loaded too. Um, you know, one wrong move and that could have been both of them gone. Um, you know, and then he showed up to my mum's workplace with a shotgun. Um, he sat in his car and in phoned her and said, look, I'm outside. Look what I've got. Um, you know, kind of thing. Um, if you don't come back to me, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and again, this all went undetected. The police didn't know. Nothing was said. Um, and then we got our own house. Um, just across the road from my nan and granddad. So we were still very close to them for protection in a way. Um, but also it's right next door to my, it was right next door to my school. So I could just walk there. That eliminated the other issue of mum having to drive me to school and all those kind of things. Um, so yeah, we moved in and we were, we were only there two, three weeks. Um, and at that point we hadn't, we weren't even living there really. We'd only been sort of sleeping there for a week of that because of, of moving stuff and all sorts of different dramas. Um, but yeah, and it, my mum even, this is how, you know, her, how compassionate she was. She even invited him over for dinner to our new house twice because he wasn't eating and he'd lost about two or three stone. And she said to him, look, come for dinner because I'm worried about you. You're not eating. He wasn't even drinking, which was very unusual for him because he would be in the pub every night, um, you know. And he came over for a meal and she said, look, I'm going to feed you because I'm, I'm worried you're not eating. I want you to have a good meal. Um, you know, and she didn't have to do that. And she knew how vile he'd been to her, yet she still invited him over. And we had a conversation. And I was absolutely terrified of him. I didn't want him in the house because I, I just, I did not have a very good feeling about what was coming. Um, and she even sat him down and made him promise to me that he'd never hurt us because I was so terrified that he was going to hurt us. Um, you know, he had a previous conviction, which we did know about. Um, however, we knew about it in his way, um, not the truth. Um, but I was so scared that because he would do exactly the same to us as what happened to his previous wife. Um, however, he actually went and did worse than what happened to his previous wife. Um, but he was driving past the house every night and stuff and things like that. And I'd say to my mum, mum, I can hear his engine because he had a Range Rover. It's very distinctive. I can hear him driving past. I know he's there. I can feel I can just sense his presence outside the house. And um, she'd go, oh, you're just paranoid. And she'd really just blow me off constantly. And then I started getting even more, you know, I had really bad anxiety at this point. I really struggled for quite a significant period of time with anxiety throughout the, towards the end of their relationship, because I just didn't know what to do with myself. And so my anxiety was going through the roof and everything was just 
in my body was just going crazy because I just knew I didn't feel safe. I didn't even feel safe in my own home. Um, and, you know, it turned out he was driving past. I wasn't paranoid. Um, you know, he was standing outside the house at night in the dark, you know, I, I and it, it, it solidified to me that I wasn't going crazy. I actually, you know, I felt better about myself then that I, was, I wasn't going insane. But um, it took until I said something to school for anyone to do anything about, you know, anyone to do anything about it. And that was accidental because you know in that situation you're trained to not tell anyone about anything and to come up with stories like that um and I accidentally I was just I just lo- like lost it in the end I'd all I'd managed to keep it together for the whole relationship and I was just um, a wreck and everyone could see that there was just something not right with me um and then I accidentally said well he was messing with his guns and then obviously that is major red flag for school for me, that wasn't really too much of a big concern until I thought it through. And then I went, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um, and then I got a text from my mum saying, oh, I've just had a call from Family Connect. What did you say to school? And then I was I was stressing myself because I'd been threatened so many times, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. And I was worried then. I was like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble when I get home. I mean, fortunately, my mum didn't tell me off because I think she suddenly realised, actually, I do need to call the police. Um, and, you know, they said to her, you need to call the police, otherwise we will kind of thing. Um, so she did. Um, but where we were, where we were living and where he was living was just over the border of two different um, forces, so West Mercia and Staffordshire. Um, And my mum's call got logged with Staffordshire because of where he lived. Um, However, the two forces needed to communicate um, because of where we live, because Staffordshire obviously didn't deal with us. but that never really effectively happened. Um, and, you know, information was missed and bits, different bits sort of went wrong. Um, but he did have his guns taken off him. Um, but that was only sort of a, a temporary thing. Um, and they were put into storage at a, a um, clay pigeon ground. Um, but again, that was only a temporary thing. I don't even know how he got his license back after what he did to his first wife, because clearly that shows he's, not capable of handling a dangerous weapon um but that's again that's another story um but yeah and they were meant to come and interview us and they never did um they missed i think two interviews actually um and when they came i mean you all remember me saying this um they didn't have the dash it was a single officer he didn't have the dash he interviewed us both together instead of separately which anyone who has dealt with domestic abuse knows that most of the time the victim is going to play it down and the child is probably going to be the one that's most willing to speak but even as my mum walked down the stairs when he finally came to um open the door she said to me just play it down before as she was about to open the door because I don't want to you know it was I don't want him to lose his guns I don't want him not to be able to go shooting I don't want him to you know be arrested because she wanted him to be happy and she just all she wanted him to do was just leave her alone but to be happy and leave her alone and the more upset and think you know more things he lost she knew the more he was at the more she was at risk and we were at risk um because the more she angered him that he would blame her for it. And so she feared the consequence of that, which is exactly why every police officer must be trained on domestic abuse and knowing that victims will be fearful and that they must ask the DASH, the domestic abuse, stalking and harassment and honour-based violence risk model. And, and that's unacceptable that the DASH wasn't used and that you weren't both spoken with. 
And I know, Georgie, you said to me once before, well, mum didn't tell them everything. Well, actually, most victims don't just put everything on a plate. You have to ask questions. And that's exactly why I created the Dash, because it gives people permission to tell their stories. And the fact that they had cancelled the appointment multiple times, even that sends a message. You know, if someone appears on your doorstep immediately, you know that it's important. You know that it's being taken seriously. If people keep changing appointment times, you know, and then they turn up and then they're not really asking questions, well, it's no wonder your mum didn't say everything that was happened happening because you need to have rapport. You need to trust the person that you're going to be telling that really sensitive, upsetting, distressing information to. And I doubt that your mum felt that trust and confidence and she was much more concerned about the, the flashback onto you and herself because there was a fear of consequence there if if they did actually do anything. And that's what most victims are facing, isn't it, every day? Yeah, definitely, 100%. And there's so many people, you know, I've spoke to, have, and they've all said, we don't. well, no-one's going to tell the police everything. And that is true. Um, I remember, you know, some of our detectives actually were quite surprised that I wasn't spoken to on my own. I was surprised I wasn't spoken to on my own, um, you know, because we were interviewed together, but normally you'd interview people separately too, because a lot of the time you find when people are together, especially when someone's in front of their child, they're not going to say everything in front of their child, and the child probably isn't going to say everything in front of the parent. Um, and you know that 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 was a, a failing in my opinion. Um, but he, it absolutely was. They set themselves up to fail in in every respect, from what I know about the case. But yeah. but carry on. Yes, it's it's really difficult yeah. to listen to. But there were opportunities here to really understand what was happening to you and your mum. Definitely, yeah. And um, at the end of the the interview, he was quite a nice officer, actually, but at the end of the interview, um, he just sort of said, oh, well, I think, um, he he said, because he's not actually posing harm to anyone else but himself, we can give him his guns back. Which, um, you know, and he killed my mum the next night. um, Which was a massive, uh, you know, failure for West Mercia. Um, and you know, unfortunately, I don't. They, I still don't think that they've upped their, um, you know, their domestic abuse training. And I'm pushing for them to have um, the Safe Lives um, DA Matters training. And you know, I, I tag them in quite a lot of things on Twitter. I think, I think they're going to have it. But that was three years ago. My mum was killed, and my area. Um, has one of the worst rates for domestic abuse. Um, you know, we've, we've got a really high rate of domestic abuse, not so much domestic homicide, um, but domestic abuse itself is really high around here. Um, I live in a small town, but there's a, a bigger town next door to it, and we're all under the same, you know, the same um, jurisdiction. And that, you know, we all tie in together, and that is the big, um, the big area for domestic abuse. But it's just it's just shocking. I mean, there's very little crime around my area. Uh, so for any crime to happen, especially a murder, just really um, sent massive shockwaves through the town. Um, but yeah, I mean, he didn't even go and use a licensed shotgun. He used a gun that he'd had at his mum's farm um, stored away for it was it was from the 1800s. This gun, it was the old hammer style shotgun. Um, you know, really, really old. It had no stock on it. He had to fix it up to be able to use it. You know, if that doesn't say premeditated murder, I don't know what does. 
I would agree with that. And I think it's really important just to say that the officer who made that judgment or assessment the day before without having asked really any information using the dash, you know, my advice is always ask questions. You cannot make an assessment of the risk that someone poses without asking the dash questions. And for him to say that he just posed a risk to himself is flawed. And I just bristle hearing that. It's really dangerous in these situations. There was clearly coercive control. There was stalking. Your mum was terrified. He had access to guns, even though they were taken away for a short time. But he was somebody who acted on threats when he made them. And we have to remember that he had a history. And if that officer had bothered to check and speak to and coordinate the intelligence and information from both forces, he would have found out that, yes, your stepfather, Andrew Hooper, had a history for what was called a fray, but it was actually on separation from his ex-wife breaking into her house with a knife, with surgical gloves and threatening to kill her, which was stalking, which was a, th a threat to kill. And therefore, you're right in what you said. He should never have had access to weapons in the first place. And that is a spectacular failure. So... The police absolutely do need training and they absolutely do need training on coercive control You're, and stalking. You're spot on. And it's not the first murder. I've worked with both police forces in the past. Staffordshire have had many, unfortunately, and suicides. And it's really important from Justine Rees and for all of the cases that there is true learning. And unfortunately, you and your mum paid a very high price for that officer's lack of understanding and lack of training because the next night, as you said, he'd put this gun back together, recommissioned it, got it working. And unfortunately, he tracked where you were, didn't he, on that night and followed you back to your house. Well, tell us a little bit about what happened when you and your mum pulled into your driveway. Yeah, so my mum had been out at a pub. Um, <clears throat> she would never go to that pub. Um, it was out of area. It was, you know, a good half an hour away. There's no way she would... She, she probably hadn't been there for a good 20 years. So there's, there's no way she would... He could find her there. Um, and he turned up there. And, you know, I, I got a call. I wasn't there with her. I was at a friend's house um, just saying, oh, you know, I think he's trapped the car. And that was sort of when the penny dropped. Oh, he took the car. Oh, he's put a tracker on it. Um, you know... I think he actually admitted it, um, but it was it was really concerning because we didn't know where the tracker was, so we couldn't just chuck it off. And anyway, it was too late. He knew we were going home. He knew where we lived. You know, there was no stopping it at this point. Um, but, yeah, so my mum came and picked me up and we were driving home. Um, it was only 10 minutes to get home from our friend's house to ours. It was very... Um, it was the strangest drive I've ever been on in my life um, for the simple reason that we just didn't have a clue what was going on and we knew we were being tracked. It was really strange knowing he knew exactly where we were at that moment in time um, and because the um, Range Rover Evoke has uh, like GPS um, abilities and you can put like a tracker on it anyway in case it gets stolen, we weren't sure if that was the built-in GPS that he'd had um set up and he we weren't sure if he'd said my wife has run off with my car can you track it for me or whether he bought one and stuck it on or we, we we didn't know what to do so we were kind of looking at this box in the roof going is that it you know what's going on um and I kept saying to my mum let me call the police now I'm concerned I want to call the police now 
because at least we can log it because it's not appropriate behavior and no no i'll call them in the morning and i just turned to my mom and i said yeah but you won't call them in the morning will you and she just kind of sat there in silence for five minutes because she knew i was right um, and then she was like well i'll call them when we get in then and i kind of took the deal because i was like okay well she's never going to let me call them now i'd already asked a million times can i call them um and you know i knew that at least if she did it when we got in, I'd be there and I'd be there, I'd be there to witness it. And I knew, I'd know she would, had called the police um, and made, you know, made them aware of what had happened. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we never got that chance um, as we pulled upon the drive. He came out of nowhere. He he hadn't been following us before, um, so I don't quite know when he joined on or whether he was sat waiting around the corner on the estate for us. Um, but he pulled up just sort of after we pulled on the drive um, and he blocked us in. So there was no way my mum could move her car. Um, it was kind of, well, we're stuck in this now. We've got to find a way out of this. Um and we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, I wasn't aware of what had happened really until she turned around and just went, oh my God, he's here. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the last thing I ever really remember her saying to me. And it's, it's quite a distinct final sentence, actually. Um, you know, oh my God, he's here. It's, it's, and that, that was a very fearful, um, in a fearful way, way too. Well, lovely listeners, I'm going to pause there for now and let you reflect on this searingly honest conversation about events leading up to Cheryl's murder. As I always say, murder doesn't happen in a vacuum, so it's important that you hear beat by beat what happened. And a reminder, a woman is murdered by a man every three days in the UK, a woman is murdered by her current or former male partner every four days. And so what you're going to hear in the next episode is exactly what happened on that night after Hooper had put a tracker on their car. And I want you to think about how that must have felt for Cheryl and also for Georgia, knowing that they were being tracked but not knowing what was going to happen. It is that unpredictability that is so terrifying and which terrorises victims not knowing what will happen next and feeling completely vulnerable and that's exactly what we're trying to change. We don't want women and children living in fear like this. It's actually the perpetrators that should be living in fear, fear of the consequence of them behaving like this, not the victims. So hit me up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let me know about how you feel regarding this episode. I know it's a really tough one, but I think Georgia shows such mental fortitude and such courage in sharing her story with us. So please do write to your Member of Parliament if you're in the UK and ask them to support Motion G1. And please also sign and share the petition as well, which is in the show notes. So be sure to join me back in the Intelligence Cell for the third and final episode of this incredible interview with Georgia. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. 
If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.